Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 34. I'm thankful for the amount of prayer we've had in this service. It's not something that we should take lightly or think lightly of. It is a blessed thing to come to the Lord in prayer. So having said that, let me pray once more for the reading and preaching of God's Word. Our Father, we thank you for this privilege that you've given us to come to you in prayer, bought by the blood of Christ, our mediator. We thank you that you hear your people when we pray. We thank you that you respond to us when we pray. Not because we deserve it, but because Christ has earned it for us. And so we pray now that as your word is yet again read and now preached, that you would be pleased to work among us, that you would bring us to repentance, that you would bring us to faith in Christ our Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, at some point in almost every boy's lives, maybe girls too, they have this desire to be a firefighter, right? The, 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 the glory of coming to the rescue of someone else, uh, an, a noble vocation, a high calling uh, to be a firefighter or to be really any public servant of a community. Firefighters and public servants are God's gifts to us. Just consider what it is that they do for us. Just consider what it is they do for a community. A house is ablaze. You can feel the heat from a hundred feet away, and it's singeing the hair on your face, if you have any. Every instinct in you says, stay away, don't go any closer to that huge, blazing fire. And the firefighter runs toward the fire. He runs towards it, not because he wants to die. He doesn't. He wants to live. He runs in there because there, perhaps there's a five-year-old who is trapped and who can't get out. He rejects every instinct of his to stay away, and he goes in because someone is in need. Someone needs to be protected. Someone needs to be rescued. Now, I think this image can be helpful to us in considering who we are as Christians. We cannot, as much as we might like, become monastics, hiding away in our monasteries, protected from the evils of this world, We can't do so because our world is in flames. It's broken. And people are in need. People are oppressed and broken. People are abused. People are treated badly. And most of all, people need the gospel of Christ to be saved. This passage this morning, chapter 34, has to do with this this idea of remaining separate and wanting to be cautious about the dangers of this world and also protecting the weak, protecting those who are offended and oppressed. It has to do with both purity and justice. You can't have one without the other. We are called to purity, and we are called to active service for the weak. So as we encounter the evils of this world, we must be careful not to be infected by it, but we also must be brave to face it head on for the sake of The week. Look at our passage with me. Genesis chapter 34, verses 1 to 31. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. 
and his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. As for, ask me for a as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor, and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people." When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses. They captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. What if, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Like any young teenager, Dinah was excited to be in a new place. What exotic new things would she get to see? What were the women like in this city? What, what, what did they dress like? What did they act like? 
So it was a terrible shock as she experienced in real life. This is not just some fairy tale. As she experienced the trauma of what we read in verse 2. Shechem, the prince, with an entitlement attitude, sees her, seizes her, lays with her, and humiliates her. Her innocence is taken away as perhaps tears stream down her face. She probably wanted to take a bath to somehow get clean from this defilement from Shechem. But it was too late. What could be done now? She was humiliated, defiled. We read that word three times throughout this passage. Unclean. Well, what could be done? I'm sure Jacob would do something to defend the honor of his daughter. You know, there's a special protection that we have, we fathers have over our daughters in particular. Not that we don't have a sense of protection over our sons, but there's something about our daughters where we want to really protect them. I've joked about my daughter that she's not getting married until she's 35 years old. It's our responsibility to protect our children. But we have this perhaps extra concern or caution when it comes to our daughters. And you better believe I'd have done something if I was Dinah's father. Probably something wrong and ungodly and stupid. Hopefully, though, I would react with righteous indignation and yet uh, faith in God to bring about the justice that the crime deserved. Certainly, if anyone would do so, it would be Jacob, right? He has matured greatly in his faith through these 20 years plus in service to Laban and now in this new place. So Jacob hears it. But then he doesn't want to bother his sons who are out in the field. So he just holds his peace. What? Holds his peace? Either he is very mature or what? seems to be more probable is that this new land has changed him a bit. He seems to be falling back into his old ways of passivity. And we'll see this play out in the rest of the story as well, as his sons take the lead in speaking with Hamor rather than Jacob himself. So Hamor is Shechem's father. He always wanted Shechem to have all the things he didn't have as a child. So he goes and talks to Jacob about getting Dinah as his wife. After all, Shechem did have real feelings for Dinah, even though he had wronged her in this way. He wanted her. He wanted to have her as his wife. Now, notice that what this represents is a a threat to the purity of God's people, a threat to the promised offspring of Abraham who would bless all nations. This is a threat to the purity of God's people. After all, if they become one with other peoples, then their faith in God would be diluted. They would fall into idolatry. They would not be separated out as the people of the one true God. Remember Abraham's instructions to his servant, swear by the Lord that you will not take a wife from among the Canaanites. Isaac's instructions to Jacob, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Why? Because the spiritual influence of another people would be too great. It would lead to idolatry. It would lead to turning away from the one true God. In fact, the last place we see this 
uh, term of becoming one people is with the Tower of Babel, when all the people of the land wanted to remain as one. But now Jacob's sons come into the picture. They're dirty and sweating from being out in the field with their livestock. Their faces are red and their brows are furrowed. But it's not the heat of the day that has made them hot. Their sister has been humiliated. The news they have received is what has made them angry and come in from the field. So now we think, finally, somebody's going to do something about this wrong that's taken place. We're going to get the justice that we need, the justice that must take place for Dinah. They're going to pay for what they've done. You see, brothers, too, have a special sense of protection for their sisters. And this would be particularly the case with Simeon and Levi being their full siblings. And they should protect their sisters in this way. So young men, boys, you should protect your sisters, not harm them. And if you are young men or boys in this church, you should see the girls and young ladies in our church as your sisters and seek their protection as well. Well, what do these brothers of Dinah's do? Well, first, Hamar speaks, and he proposes a marriage between Dinah and Shechem. But more than that, let our peoples intermarry. Come and join us in the land. There's plenty of room for all of us. And Shechem, the sorry thing, speaks up too. I'll give you whatever you want. Just say the word and it's sure. Name your bride price. I will give it to you. Just let me have her for my wife. And now the sons of Jacob have learned a thing or two from their father. From his deceptive ways. And they've got something up their sleeve. Notice the author doesn't tip us off what it is yet. He simply says, they answered these men deceptively. But we don't get the punchline until later. They answer him, it would be a disgraceful thing for us to intermarry. Because you men haven't been circumcised, as is our custom. Let the men be circumcised first, and then we will do as you propose. We will marry your daughters, and we will give you our daughters as well. But if not, we're out of here. Well, Shechem has to have Dinah. And so they, they agree quickly. And not only that, they convince all the men of the city to go along with them in this plan to be circumcised. Now, I don't know about you, but I might have raised an objection or two. Can I object to this? You want me to do what? Because you want to marry this girl? Well, they play it out that it will be good for their city. They'll have all of their livestock, all of Jacob's livestock, all of their possessions will be theirs. But amazingly, they all do it. Every last one of the men of the town are circumcised. And then we get to the punchline, the climax of the story. While all the men of the city are moaning and groaning in pain, Simeon and Levi take their swords and begin slicing through flesh and bone. And you get the feeling after the fact that they are perhaps proud of what they have done, that they have done a good thing for their sister Dinah. It feels good to get revenge. You can imagine them thinking as they go through this town, this one is for Dinah. And this one 
is for me. And this one is for Hamor, who pretended like nothing happened. And this one is for our family's honor. They probably didn't even notice the blood that accumulated on their hands by the time they got done. And if that wasn't enough, they got their other brothers to join in to plunder the city. And this climax of the story really is just a punch in the gut that leaves us breathless. Is this what we wanted? Is this the justice that was needed? Men laying dead in their homes? Women without husbands? Children without daddies? All rounded up to become a part of this new family. Perhaps what's most disgusting about what Simeon and Levi had done, this whole plan is that they used the very sign of the covenant. What was meant to represent life and the promise of offspring, they used it for a scheme for death. Notice Jacob's first words come out in verse 30. You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. We're not big enough to take on all of them. What if they come after us? You can sense, even here, a little bit of fear, self-serving fear. But his sons, Dad, are you serious? You're okay with Shechem treating our sister like this? And this event leads directly into Jacob going back to Bethel. It seems as if he should have done this from the very beginning. Well, what what do we gain from this story? What do we gain from this passage? I've been told by one brother pastor that he once read a commentary that said, nothing profitable can be taught or preached from this passage today. So is that true? We might get that sense sometimes. But of course that's not true. All of God's word has been given for our instruction, and this chapter is no exception. So we can start by asking a question, a good question to ask of any scripture passage we're reading. Why did the author include this here? He didn't have to include this as a part of the redemptive story of God. Why did he include this chapter and why did he place it here? Well, there are a few reasons. One of them is this is a snippet of what life is like in the almost and not yet of the promised land. It's just a a glimpse of the tension that God's people face in this already not yet promised land. Second, it begins to answer the question of who will succeed Jacob as the leader of God's people. Third, it also sets up this tension between God's promise of the land and the people who already live there. What's going to become of the inhabitants of the promised land? If God has promised this is our land, people are already living there. What are we going to do about this? It also represents a threat to the promised offspring of Abraham and its purity. But the, one, the aspect of this I want to focus in on is this. This tension of how can God's people live in the midst of this sinful world in integrity and for the glory of God? How can we live in purity in the midst of this defiled world? So this passage has to do with the purity of God's people, which is being threatened 
and the purity of the seed of Abraham who would come to bless all nations. So here's the theme I want us to consider for our remaining time. Since God's people have been set apart from the world, they must be vigilant for their purity and passionate for the honor of Christ. Since we have been set apart, we must be vigilant for our purity and passionate for the honor of Christ. So notice our first point is that God desires His people to be separate and pure. God desires His people to be separate and pure. God had called Abraham out of Ur, away from his family in chapter 12. You remember that? It's been a long time since we've been there. But God called him out to be separate from his family. And we noted in the next chapter, in chapter 13, Abraham and Lot being divided. And Lot gradually moving closer and closer into worldliness, into Sodom and Gomorrah, but Abraham remaining separate. And in chapter 15, we see God's covenant with Abraham, that he will be his God, that Abraham will become a great nation, that God will be their God and they will be his people. So how were they separated? How did God separate his people for for himself? Abraham and his people were separated by the covenant sign of circumcision. We see that in chapter 17 of Genesis. And these two chapters, 34 and chapter 17, are are linked by that theme of circumcision. By that separation, the sign of the covenant. It's directly connected to the covenant that God would give him an offspring more than he could count. And that there would be one particular offspring through whom all the nations would be blessed. But this physical sign of circumcision represented something else, something spiritual. It represented faith. Abraham and his seed are separated, not simply by circumcision, but by faith. We read in Romans chapter 9 that not all who are descended from Abraham, not all who are the physical offspring of Abraham, are Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And we read in Galatians 3, verses 7 to 9, Those of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. God's people are separated by their faith in the one true God. And why are they separated? Ultimately, God's people are separated from the world for His glory. We read 1 Peter 2.9 already. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Holy, set apart, pure, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of the darkness into His marvelous light. One way we can apply this truth is by this. We must not get too comfortable in this world. There should always be an underlying discomfort for the people of God in this world because we don't belong here. We do not belong of this world. There should be an underlying caution to not being in, not being of the world. You notice this with both Jacob and Dinah. Jacob 
perhaps got a little comfortable in Shechem because it was a, a great trading city. There was a lot of wealth to be had in this city. And so rather than moving his tents on to Bethel, he remained here in Shechem. He began, like Lot, getting comfortable with Sodom and Gomorrah. Jacob, it seems, is becoming comfortable in this city. And Dinah, too. And you, you don't blame her for being raped in the way that she was. But it seems that she had begun getting comfortable in this city of Shechem, going out on her own to check out what the ladies of the land were like. You sense this whole family getting comfortable with the world. And we must not do that. Now, there are some who have the job of climbing tall cell phone towers. Um, and speaking with people who are a part of those companies, you don't want someone who's really comfortable with climbing tall towers. So I would be bad at that because it would sound exciting to me. You know, climb all the way up there, get a good view of the surrounding land. It sounds exciting. Well, why don't you want people who are too comfortable with this? Well, if you get too comfortable, you also get careless. They want someone who knows they don't belong up there that high. They want someone who feels a slight discomfort at being up there, not frightened, but cautious and careful. And in the same way, Christians, when we get too comfortable with being in the world, we get careless. And if we're not careful, we can begin to slowly creep into being of the world and not simply in the world. Now, I'm not aiming for a sort of seclusion where we huddle off by ourselves, but there is a real sense when, in which we are to be separate from the world. We are to be separate from the world in our, by our faith in God and by our holiness, by our obedience to the Lord. We must, as Paul says, keep a close watch on our lives and on our doctrine. And the flip side of this is not only what must we be careful to not be too comfortable, we must be vigilant for our purity. We must be vigilant for our purity. As a church and as individual members of this church, we must be vigilant for our purity. Think about the things that you are passionate about. And are you as passionate about your purity before the Lord and before others? Jesus says that if your right hand, if your right eye offends you, you're to pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, you are to chop it off. This vigilance for purity before the Lord, that we wouldn't be stained by this world, but we would remain separate from us. God desires his people to be separate and pure. And yet this chapter represents a huge threat to that. In fact, God's people here fail in what God had called them to do. God's people have failed to be separate and pure. We have failed this too. Jacob and Dinah becoming too comfortable with the world. But notice also how they responded wrongly to being wronged. This too is a part of their sin in not 
remaining separate and pure. Notice Jacob's passivity. Like with his mother who said, do this and do this, follow my directions carefully and you'll get the blessing. Like with his wives who said, here, take my servant as your wife and have children with her. Jacob, again, is lured into passivity. Not trusting in God and not taking action for the one who had been wronged. Jacob's sons were righteously indignant as they should have been. That was good and okay, but it quickly turned into revenge, into getting vengeance. See, these are, these, this represents two ways we might be tempted to respond to evil in this world. One is passivity. So we see an evil in this world. We see a victim in this world and we don't do anything about it. We might chalk it up to God's sovereignty. Well, I don't need to do anything because God is sovereign and he will have justice. This could be something like racism or seeing Muslims mistreated or seeing abuse or seeing oppression for the pure, uh, for the poor. You've probably seen the show, What Would You Do with John Kinones? I think that's how you say it. Have you seen that, that show? They have these hidden cameras in different situations in which perhaps someone is, uh, seems to be being mistreated. And in many cases, nobody does anything. They just sit there and watch. They don't step in and save the person or rescue the person. And of course, this is a problem because it fails to obey the command, love your neighbor as yourself. We might be tempted toward passivity. We might also be tempted toward revenge, to abuse the abuser, to get your revenge and give the offender what's coming to them. And of course, that's a problem because then we are taking the place of God. We are disobeying the command where God tells us to allow God to have his justice. So the right response then is a sort of active faith, a faith in God to bring about justice and also an activity which aligns with the justice available to you. Activity which brings you in line with the great commandments. Love God with all of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Love demands that we are active in this world for the sake of the oppressed and the poor. We cannot turn a blind eye to the evil of this world. But we leave ultimate justice and vengeance for God. We see the wrong responses of God's people in this passage, but notice how it results. Notice the result of their actions. Simeon and Levi lose their preeminence among the sons of Jacob. They will not become the leaders of Israel. In chapter 49, verses 5 through 7, Jacob says as much. Not only that, though, they made Israel a stink among the nations. Verse 30. Though Jacob seems to be motivated by fear and selfishness, there is still some truth here. Their actions have led to the dishonoring of God's people. And it didn't ultimately completely work because they're still infected by idolatry. Right? All the women and children who are brought into this covenant family still have their gods, still have their idols, and they become infected with this idolatry as well, as we'll see in the next chapter. But not only that, they not only brought shame upon the name of Israel and God's people, they also 
directly related to that, brought shame upon the name of God by their actions. See, our impurity has the power to bring shame upon the name of God and the name of Christ. We are, I, I, I was reading through a book called The Shepherd Leader at Home, which is a wonderful book. I'd like for all of our men to read through it at some point. One of the most recent chapters we read really hit home, just talking about sin, uh, protecting our marriages, and the author called us to consider the shame our sin would bring upon the name of Christ. What, what would happen if we, every time we were tempted to sin, were to recall the shame which would be brought upon the name of Christ because of our impurity? Would that God guard us from sin for the honor of Christ? Unbelievers like to use our hypocrisy as evidence against us and as evidence against Christ. Therefore, we must be passionate about the glory and honor of Christ in our lives. God desires His people to be separate and pure, and yet we have failed. What we need is a hero, someone to rescue us, someone to cleanse us from our filthiness, our defilement. Jacob is not the hero. He was passive, self-seeking, fearful, Jacob's sons are not the heroes. They were vindictive. They took revenge into their own hands. We are not the heroes either. Just like Jacob failed, just like Jacob's sons failed, we fail by being passive, by being self-seeking, by being worldly, fearful, vengeful. We do not, as 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, do everything for the glory of God. We still sin often. We need someone who will work justice for God's people, who will protect the innocent, who will rescue the oppressed. We need someone who will protect the purity of God's people. And Christ is that hero who saves his people, who purifies them by his own blood, and who is enabling us to live in purity in the midst of this sinful world. Consider Christ as the hero who purifies his people. Unlike Jacob, who seems unconcerned with his daughter's defilement or fearful of his enemies, Jesus is jealous and passionate for the purity of his people. It was so important to him that he faced his enemies head-on as he set his face toward Jerusalem. As he bore the whips on his back, as he carried the cross, as he took the nails through his hands and feet, as he bore the wrath of God for sin, he did this to purify his people for himself. And unlike Jacob's sons, who in their anger slaughter their enemies, Jesus is the lamb who is led to become slaughtered himself. He purifies his people not by killing others, but by being killed himself. He purifies his people not by destroying the defilers, but by becoming the defiled as all our sin and shame is loaded onto him. Jesus Christ is the promised offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who lays down his life as the ultimate price for his bride. By his sacrifice and by his word, he is making her holy. 
and cleansing her and making her presentable to himself, as Paul says in Ephesians, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are pure in Christ. Consider the amazing nature of our justification in Christ. If you were to take a Sharpie marker and make a mark on a piece of paper for every one of your sins, it would be black as night, hundreds, thousands of pages. And by the blood of Christ, we are made pure. This is what justification is. Because of his death on the cross for us, because he has taken our defilement upon himself, he has taken all of our sins, past, present, and future upon himself, he has made us clean in the sight of God our Father. This is wonderful news. This is the best of news. And now, brothers and sisters, he calls us out of this world. He calls us to be pure and he empowers us to be pure by his indwelling spirit. Listen to the second part of that passage in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain. I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It won't do to go to a monastery. There's too much indwelling sin to escape it there anyway. And there's too much injustice to turn a blind eye. It will not do to go on a rampage seeking to destroy the wicked by political power or physical strength. There are too many. You'll go to jail. It's not what Christ has called us to do. We cannot ignore the injustices we see in the world and in our communities. We must be active. And we cannot ignore that this world presents a real threat to our purity. So we must be cautious and careful. In the words of Jesus, we must be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. But Christ has called us to purity in the midst of this defiled world. He has called us, he has called us to seek justice for the oppressed. So, as James says... Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To keep look after widows and orphans and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now it occurs to me that each of us majors on one of these and minors on the other. We can be good at keeping unstained from the world, but at what cost? Do we get our hands dirty in caring for the widow and the orphan for seeking justice? Or are we content to have a half-pure religion before God, our Father. Let's spend a moment reflecting upon the Word of God, the Gospel, and His call to us as the people of God. Let's spend a moment doing that.